Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma-farers, O children of the Noble Ones, most excellent assembly of medium-sized beings. Being back uh, at Spare Rock in the Bay Area, I think that may be a factor that is inclining some uh, reminiscing or memories arising of when I first started meditation in a formal way. I was living in San Francisco and I went went to a 10-day retreat that was hosted by Spirit Rock before Spirit Rock existed. But um, it was my introduction to meditation was at a 10-day retreat. I hadn't meditated at all before going there. And uh, it was a powerful experience. It was not easy, as you might imagine. I was very, I had no idea about anything. Literally, I had not done any meditation before going there. And it was, you know, an intensive retreat like this, not as long. But it, uh, it changed my life and sent it off in a direction that I had not anticipated. Just that, that long, interesting journey since that time. I was younger then, my hair was a different color, and there was a lot more of it, among other things. <laughs> So by now, whether you've been here for the last few days or the last four and a half weeks, you've probably noticed that there are two two kind of main problems for us in our meditation practice, aren't there? A body and a mind. (laughs) I mean, those are the two things that really, really mess us up. You know, the body won't, we set it up really well and it just won't stay comfortable. And even, you know, off retreat, it gets old, it loses its hair like mine is doing and starts aching and changes its shape and all kinds of things we don't want it to do. And the mind, we don't have much control over that, do we? gets up to all kinds of nonsense, trying to persuade us of all kinds of weird stuff and, you know, won't stay with the breath. But there are some obvious drawbacks if we didn't have a body and a mind. (laughs) It would be much harder to meditate, among other things. A A lot of stuff would be more difficult. We are drawing, as, as we've mentioned, referred to the Satipatthana Sutta as the source for most of the instructions that we're using uh, and offering on this retreat. And, and it's a very beloved discourse, one of the most beloved discourses in the entire uh, collection of the Pali Canon. <clears throat> uh, very often it's memorized and chanted in, in Buddhist countries, certainly in places like Burma. 
Thailand, where I've spent a lot of time. The word satipatthana is interesting. It's a, a combination, as so many Pali words are, of, of two shorter words. Sati is the Pali word for mindfulness. And upatthana, uh, generally translated to mean establishment. And I think Andrea used this translation, establishments of mindfulness. Uh, sometimes it's translated as foundations, but I think this translation as establishments of mindfulness is is actually uh, an important one. It makes an important distinction because it places the emphasis more on the the sense or attitude or idea of uh, being aware, of establishing awareness, than on the particular object of the awareness. And so it points to something important for us to keep in mind that we will hammer away at here and have been that, that anything that arises has the potential to serve as a vehicle for liberating insight to arise. It's the establishment in mindfulness that is important. That's the key to the practice. And this understanding is really important and really crucial for us because it can help cut through our tendency to see certain experiences as, as, as wrong or bad, something that shouldn't be happening, something that is in the way, something we have to uh, get out of the way so we can then go back to our meditation and but mindfulness has this incredible power to transform perceived obstacles to meditation into objects of meditation. So even something that uh, is described as a hindrance, which the Pali word nivarana means more like covering or veil. It's a clouding over. But if it tended to carefully as Bhante was, Bhante was saying, it is, becomes the object of our meditation and, and in itself can serve as a vehicle for understanding to arise. So there's this implicit understanding with this practice that if something is in the way, it is the way. Really um, powerful and actually, um, yeah, profound perspective. Henry David Thoreau once said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. So we're kind of um, bringing this... uh, aim or intention of living deliberately. There's a, a deliberateness to our, our lives here. And we are steering towards this uh, perception of and exploration of what Thoreau called the essential facts of life. I mean, that's really what we're doing here. We're getting to the heart of the matter, to the essence of things. And meditation uh, guides us in this direction. 
it guides us to a direct, non-conceptual experience. And we do come right up against these essential truths or essential facts of life. And we do this just through our ongoing moment-to-moment experience. So what we're exploring, what we're interested in here are what we can call the universal characteristics of all experience. Anything. And so for our purposes, it truly does not matter what's happening. And this is such a hard thing for us to embrace. But it's really, I think, critical that we do so. And this doesn't deny the fact that we have our preferences. Well, maybe none of you have preferences. I have preferences. I like pleasant experiences. I prefer those to unpleasant ones as a general rule. And is that true for anyone else here? That you maybe have a slight preference for pleasant experiences? Any hands? A few of you. And that's not weird. It's kind of normal and natural. There's nothing strange about that. There's a a teaching, the great way is not difficult for one who is not attached to their preferences. It doesn't say for one who has no preferences. Because they'll come. Preferences aren't the problem. We can be mindful of a preference. It's just another object. But this understanding that it actually doesn't matter what's arising in terms of um, the possibility for understanding, for liberation to arise, is uh, a relief and it's very empowering because it if our happiness, if our freedom, if our practice is dependent on having certain kinds of experiences, avoiding other ones, achieving only special sublime states, then we're not going to find true freedom because states don't last. Things are always changing. Conditions are changing. And when conditions change and our special sublime state goes away, we're back where we started from and there's no real freedom in that. So true freedom is not found through gaining some kind of control over our lives, over experience, so that it's only the way we want it to be. I am really sorry if this is a disappointment to you. You know, the secret teachings that are going to come out in maybe some late evening give you the key. If you do this, it'll only be the way you want. You know, we sort of are holding out hope, even though none of us would admit that was our, our hope, probably. So it's not about that. It's about coming into alignment and harmony with the way things are. And so in this sense, we're not here to get something we don't already have. We're not here to go somewhere other than where we are right now. We're not going from here to there. We're not going from now to then, some future state of grace. 
as I've heard Andrea say, we're not going from here to there, we're going deeper into here. We could say deeper into here and now. That's where freedom is going to be found. And it's here right now. Because it's an understanding, it's a realization of the truth of things. It's not something we get. So back to this uh, teaching of the Buddha, the Satipatthana Sutta, and these these uh, in meditation instructions, they're quite fantastic. They're beautiful. It's a beautiful discourse. This brilliant, really quite scientific mind that the Buddha had. And so I know this has got to be familiar to uh, maybe most of you, certainly some of you, but it might be somewhat new or, or not not that clear, so I think I'll say just a few words, because we'll be talking about it in, in all kinds of different ways. But simply put, we could say that the, the satipatthanas, the four satipatthanas, um, they take the entirety of our experience, everything we can experience through our senses, and looks at it in terms of four kind of frames of reference. That's what Tan, Tan Jeff, Tanisaro Bhikkhu calls, calls them four frames of references or spheres of attention. So uh, the four of them are mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling, tone, vedana, that is pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, feeling, tone. Mindfulness of the mind or the mind, heart, citta. And mindfulness of dhammas, which we could say are patterns of experience or ways of looking at experience in terms of things like the Four Noble Truths or the Five Hindrances or the Six Sense Bases and their objects and, and other things, the factors of awakening. So you don't have to worry about remembering that because in our practice, for the most part, we're not choosing one of these and directing our attention towards it. Occasionally we might choose to do this, or, or sometimes it, it just happens that way. But mostly there's a, a, an organic flow between them. And we may highlight one or another, or they present themselves to us. But if we're bringing our mindful awareness to our life as it unfolds moment by moment, we're exploring the four satipatthanas because it includes our whole life. So we can't not, there's nothing that falls outside of it. So we don't have to worry about that. I think Andrea the other day said we're, we're exploring our life, no part left out. I love that, that sense of that, that the image, no part left out. But actually there's something a profound in that, because if we do leave something out, then it's an incomplete. could never come to fulfillment. We have to include everything. I'll, we can't, it can't be, I'll look at everything except this, except that. That doesn't work. At some point we have to meet everything in our minds and hearts. So thus far in, 
in March, over the past few days, we've had a lot of emphasis on mindfulness of the body. And, and mindfulness of the body is highly praised by the Buddha. There's a, a teaching in one of the collections, the Anguttara Nikaya, uh, the Kaya Gatasati Vaga. That word, I love the word Kaya Gatasati. Kaya means body, Gata means gone, and Sati mindfulness, as I said. So it's body gone mindfulness, or mindfulness gone to the body. These are some of the words of the Buddha. Even as one who encompasses with their mind the mighty ocean includes thereby all the rivulets that run into the ocean, just so, O practitioners, whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes thereby all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge. One thing, O bhikkhus, O practitioners, if developed and cultivated, leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. One thing, O practitioners, O bhikkhus, if developed and cultivated, leads to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. And there's a very famous statement, I'll close with these quotations with this. I declare that within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and mind, there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. So this is, is a restatement of the Four Noble Truths from a slightly different angle. It, it has the whole of the teachings. The whole of the teachings can be found within the exploration of mindfulness directed to the body. Mindfulness gone to the body. Kaya gata sati. And so in the discourse, and this, this section of the discourse is, I think it's the longest one, certainly uh, the second longest. It's, it's very complete. The sections on mindfulness of feelings in the mind are, are very, very short in comparison. And it begins with mindfulness of breathing. Simply knowing one is breathing, mindful one breathes in, mindful one breathes out. Just knowing the breath moving in and out. Breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, one knows I breathe out in short. Breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. So a little a finer attention, awareness, mindfulness, noticing, oh, it's a, it's a longer in-breath, longer out-breath. Breathing and experiencing the whole body. And we could look at this in a couple of ways. We could see it as um, the whole, the body of the breath, as uh, different ones of us have said, the beginning, the middle, the end of an in-breath, beginning, middle, end, the whole breath or the breath manifesting within the whole body. A couple different ways we could interpret that, look at that. 
and then the using the breath in a more um, directed, intentional way uh, to calm the body formation, to cultivate tranquility. Breathing in, I calm the body. Breathing out, I calm the body. So um, bringing this sense and uh, intention around the breath. Then the next section is about postures. We talked about this, the four postures of of a walking, standing, sitting, or reclining, and I've added the fifth posture of in-betweening, which um, accidentally got left out of the translation. I'll have to ask Diana what the poly for in-betweening is. Uh, I'm counting on you for that at some point. And then all kinds of activities of just normal uh, daily life activities. Going forward, returning, looking ahead, looking away, looking behind flexing and extending the limbs, wearing clothing, carrying things, eating, drinking, tasting, defecating, urinating, going to sleep, waking up, talking, keeping silent. So just the stuff we do as we go through the day, mindfulness there. So this is this um, mindfulness of daily activities and the power of that continuity of the awareness through the days here, Really great practice. Really, if you have any tendency to sort of emphasize the sitting and then the walking and then everything else, turn it upside down. Everything else, then the walking and some sitting. That would be interesting. And from personal experience, quite powerful. Recommend it. Then all the anatomical parts, and traditionally the 32 parts of the body, uh, Bhante mentioned that he, was it five or six Bhante, the most obvious five, ones of hair of the head and the hair of the body and the nails, teeth and skin. But traditionally it's 32 parts of the body. The elements that Bhante touched on this morning, uh, mentioning these, uh, they're called Datu in Pali earth, water, fire, and air. Come back to that. We contemplate the body in terms of its nature to decay. That's not something we generally do on a regular basis. How many of you spend time contemplating the nature of the body to decay uh, regularly? Some, yeah. There's practices in, in some places, and mostly in Buddhist countries, of, of going to what's called a charnel ground. It's a, a ground where corpses are left to decompose when there's no one to take care of cremating them or anything and, and meditating there, watching them decay. So one is comparing one's own body. Just as this body is of the nature to decay, so is my own body. Someone once sent me a, uh, a time-lapse video of a, it was an, an animal that had died. It was, I think, a fox or uh, some, uh, some woodland creature like that. And in the beginning of the video, it was recognizably a furry animal. The tail and all looked pretty good. And, by, and it went through the, the entire process of decaying, bloating out, and uh, flies laying eggs and maggots decaying it and 
and it turning, going through all these changes in about two minutes, very speeded up, to it becoming part of the earth and a plant sprouting up through it, becoming soil, basically. It's quite beautiful, actually. And so we, we contemplate our own body in terms of this is its nature. This is what, what will happen to it, although we often go to great lengths to try to prevent that from happening for some reason. And finally, I love this, all of this, and finally at the end, simply knowing there is a body. So we can come back to that great simplicity at any moment. We can simply know uh, there is a body. Try it right now. Say those words in the mind if you'd like. There is a body. Just simply knowing that in this direct felt sense of the body in the position it's sitting in for you or reclining, standing perhaps. So I want to do, uh, spend some time, a bit of a more elaboration on um, an exploration, you could say, of mindfulness of the body in terms of the four elements. Um, because it's really a powerful, profound um, way of seeing things. And, and it really shifts our practice towards the insight of insight meditation. So uh, as, as Bhante mentioned, and I did also um, a few moments ago, um, the body is described as being comprised or made up of four great elements. And, and the words can sound kind of antiquated or archaic, like some um, old way of looking at things, maybe even kind of alchemical, earth, water, fire, and air. And, and for this way of seeing the body to make any sense at all, we have to see um, our direct felt sense, our subjective awareness of the body from within the body. So the words are not so important. It's that direct uh, experience. So it's not an intellectual exercise. It points to what we feel when we come into intimate contact with our life through the body. So the earth element, earth pat, is a patavidatu, has uh, manifests as um, aspects of solidity or or a kind of a heaviness, perhaps um, sensations from hardness to softness, range of textures from uh, roughness to smoothness. Earth element, water element, apodatu. Uh, has characteristics of cohesion and fluidity. So it's the flowing nature of water and also the, the, uh, co- the binding, the glue, the adhesive nature of water. Uh, like if you mix uh, liquid with, say, dust or flour if you're uh, baking and it holds it, it binds it together. These bodies of ours are bound together, held together, cohered by water element. If you removed the water from a Greg while he was sitting up here, you'd have a, a pile of dry bits 
you could sweep them up and, and put them out and with, mix them with the soil. And when we're born, babies, newborn babies are about close to 80% of the body is made of water. We dry out as we age. And by the time you're my age, you're more somewhere between 50 and 60%. Still a lot of water in there. All the different fluids. And, and it holds it together. So if I do dry out and become a pile of little dry bits, you, you could... There's a picture up here. You could see what happens if you put water and you could bind it together and, and roll it out. Or probably, I, I don't know how heavy it would be. You might just be able to toss it out. So um, anyway, if, should that happen, I'll ask you to clean it up. And then the fire element, tejo datu, the range of temperature from hot to cold, warm to cool. So it's not just heat. And then air or wind element, the wayo datu, and manifests as movement, as pressure, tension, vibration. Um, one of the ways we feel it is uh, the expansion of the belly with the breath coming in, and it's like a balloon. It has that pressure and tension there. Let's do a, a little guided meditation following on from uh, what Bhante did. So you don't have to change your posture. But you might close your eyes. It might be a little easier. <clears throat> and uh, just as we're sitting here, maybe let your, your attention come to your mouth, the area of your mouth. And very gently touch your teeth together. You can feel the hardness there. Earth element. And and now rub your tongue along the tops of the, the molars, the chewing teeth, or the, the bottom edge of the biting teeth. There's a roughness there also earth element, or maybe let the tongue move across the face of the front teeth, the flat part, very smooth perhaps, more a sense of smoothness, roughness and smoothness there, the earth element, hardness, texture, rough and smooth. Or maybe just feel the whole body sitting for a moment, that sense of, of the earth element resting on the earth below us, that sense of solidity and of earthiness resting downwards. And also back to the the mouth, you can probably feel some uh, water in there, some wetness there. And if you Wet your lips just a little bit, or maybe you don't have to wet them, but kind of squeeze your lips together. And then slowly part them. You'll feel the stickiness there, the cohesion of water element. And maybe in some part of the body, perhaps where where the clothing is, there's a sense of warmth. Or, right now, for me, 
I feel warmth in my ears. My ears are warm. I feel heat element there. Or maybe if you let the hands rest one in the other, you'll feel warmth where the hands are touching, maybe coolness on the skin, the backside of the hands, or, or coolness as the breath enters the nostrils and warmth as it exits the nostrils. Fire element, Tejo Dattu. And now just let your one of your hands, if it's comfortable for you, to rest on the belly. And there's movement there. It might be quite small, but the movement of the breath, that movement and pressure, you can feel like a balloon maybe. Sometimes air element shows up as vibration. You might feel subtle vibration somewhere in the hands or some other part of the body. So you can open your eyes when you're ready. <clears throat> so it's nothing, nothing esoteric or, you know, it's just that's all those range of sensations. That's our experience of the body, the direct experience. And, and seeing the body, investigating, exploring it in this way, in terms of these elements, is this connection, felt sense, intimacy with our direct sense experience. Below, you could say, the, what we see now when we open our eyes, we look around, we see all these bodies sitting around and all the parts of them. So it's a very different way of being with the body. And we tend uh, to objectify the body and we see it as an object that we own. We so often, my body, my body's like this, my body's like that ride around in it or make it go places or something. <laughs> see it as some kind of vehicle. We see it as something we manipulate. And when we say body consciousness, so, so often that brings up this sense of something we, we work on and manipulate. And there's this external image and we want it to look a certain way. And there's a huge industry that caters to that way of looking at the body and you know, when we get up in the morning, what's one of the first things we do if we go if we go into the bathroom and what do we do? Look in the mirror. Oh, there I am. For me, that's kind of a, that's a mixed thing, first thing in the morning. You know, usually my whole face has gotten mashed off and I have to kind of coax it back around at the front and my hair is like a wave. What little of it is is a wave breaking off to one side and... It's, it's not beautiful, you know, and it gets a little better after I kind of do a few things to it. <laughs> All these thoughts and ideas we have, we either bolster our ego with it or we tear ourselves down and beat ourselves up because there's something wrong with it. And, you know, it has this, 
subjectifying of the body has this effect of disconnecting us from our own inner vitality, from nature, from others. Like they're comparing mine in comparison. It's gotten old, it's gotten gray, it's gotten saggy, whatever. It's not okay. And there sure is a lot of stuff out there in the, if we watch media stuff, TV and things, really telling us how our body isn't okay, but we can make it better if we buy a bunch of stuff and really work at it. And, and so what we're doing here in some ways is we're becoming truly embodied, embodied in a really different way. And this can be so healing. Awareness of the body from within the body doesn't have this, uh, doesn't lead to this objectification. It leads us to this intimacy and to love, I think. And so then what is the body? Maybe just remembering our little guided meditation or when you're sitting in meditation, what is the body experienced from within the body? It's this flow of changing sensations, isn't it? Hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, coolness, warmth, movement, pressure, vibration. All of those things, the elements manifesting directly. It's the shifting flow. What we call body is process. It's not a thing. You can't experience arm, hand, or leg. That's a concept. It's useful. I have arms and hands and legs, and I'm really glad. They do all kinds of good stuff. So it's not denying that this body is sitting up there and all ears are sitting out there. In a way, we do have these bodies and they need our care and love. They need to be fed and kept clean and all the rest. So mindfulness of the body, mindfulness practice doesn't lead to rejecting all body images. It makes sense to keep them healthy, take care of them the best we can. But we gain this flexibility to move between useful body images and this openness of non-conceptual direct experience, we discover that we can move gracefully and fluidly between these two experiences and that they're both real. Mindfulness reveals a certain kind of dependability that's an aspect of the body. And it doesn't mean that the body is exempt from change. That's clearly not the case abundantly clear to me. The body is reliable, dependable, because it will tend to tell us the truth. This is from uh, uh, Bhikkhuni Ajahn Upeka. The body doesn't lie. It never lies. The body always tells you the truth about where you are. If you listen to your mind, that's where you go wrong. 
The body is the best tool you can have because it is always there with you. Each moment you can come back to the body to see where you are and how you feel. That is your support to stay present, to be able to receive life without trying to control it. It always tells us we're right here, right now. It is always available. The mind gets up to all kinds of things, not, not as reliable. It's not always telling us the truth. tries to tell us that we don't have to get old, aging is optional, tries to tell us that death is optional. Someone sent me a magazine with a a headline for an article, Can Google Solve Death? (laughs) I mean, give me a break. I don't think death is solvable. (laughs) If we take birth from that first breath, that's the direction we're heading. That's just reality, friends. The elemental nature of the body, this way of experiencing the body, is this window into the, the nature of all, all materiality, all experience, really. So the body is always telling us, as I said, the truth of, of about the truth of change. Straightforward about aging, sickness, and death. It uh, reveals the truth of change on subtle and profound level. Bonte uh, spoke about this a bit this morning. This is the realm of of really transformational insight. So we we talk about this kind of radical intimacy of meditation and and this intimacy in terms of uh, the body. Below the realm of concepts, because concepts don't change. They're just an idea that we might have in the mind. But, But the direct experience of of everything, the body and everything else, is that it's constantly changing, constant flux, this dynamic flow arising and passing. And as we draw closer, as the mindfulness gets finer and closer and more and more intimate, we start to see this truth of change in a subtle and profound way. And sometimes all we see is change, like a fine vibration. And any sense of the form of the body may fall away completely for times. And what we held as solid or fixed is not solid at all. This fleeting flow of sensation that seem to be falling away even as they arise. And we, we see there's nothing there to hold on to because nothing lasts long enough. 
and nothing there is a reliable source of happiness or satisfaction. Not that there's something wrong with it, but it just doesn't last long enough. It's not reliable in that way. There's a fragility there because its nature is to change and pass away. We can't have the body being a certain way be our source for happiness because it won't stay like that. There's nothing in there. And this points to the truth of this in terms of all aspects of our experience. None of it lasts long enough to be our source of lasting happiness. It doesn't mean that it's not great, beautiful, pleasant, fantastic experiences and sensations and feelings and blissful states of mind, yes. May you have them, but they are not going to last, friends. And so we see that it's this flow of causal flow that's not amenable to our will. It's happening by itself due to causes and conditions. We can't have it be the way we want it by deciding to it. We can't decide, let me only have pleasant feelings in the body. Not even the Buddha got to do that. Let the body not age. So it's, it's, it's coreless. It's uh, uncontrollable. Just the nature. These are these essential facts that Thoreau was pointing towards. Which affront to come become intimate with these essential facts of life, the universal characteristics of things. And as we connect more and more deeply with these on this direct level, not through some decision we make or some persuasion of a point of view, but just through seeing that, the mind inclines to release, to letting go. This is the realm of insight. This is the realm of the insight of insight meditation. This seeing in these ways this is where the power of liberating understanding and wisdom can arise. And we see through this that the body is just part of nature. It's nature coming together, the same thing. This um, thing we just did with the guided meditation, through seeing the elements, that's the same stuff everywhere. The hardness in the body is the same as the hardness of rocks and and the pavement and things outside and the water is water. Movement, tension, vibration, those happen out there. The wind moving through the trees, it's just the nature. That's what we're doing here. It's just, we're just exploring nature and seeing reality, not getting something, just getting the clouds out of our vision so we see. I mean, seeing the elements in the body and then in the world, it, it cuts through this identification with it, uh, this ownership of it. You know, which part of the changing flow of sensations? Is it my hardness? My pressure? It sounds ridiculous, really. Oh, my pressure. <laughs> my, my vibration. It's, it's just vibration. It's here, it's here.
It's just nature. And so let's just give it back, give it back to nature. Mm. I mean, in a way, that's what we're doing here. And mindfulness of the body is such a clear, tangible way of seeing, oh, let me just give it back to nature. I don't have to hold on to it, claim ownership of any of it. Mindfulness of the body then reveals uh, the relationship of body to mind, mentality, materiality. We'll say more about this. I'll touch on it briefly tonight. We can see um, our experience in terms of of materiality and mentality or material and form, nama and rupa, nama. Pali word nama is the root of the word name in English. Name and form. The mind knows, does not have form. The body has form, does not know. These things uh, condition one another. Materiality conditioning the rising of consciousness. So bodily sensations pressure, warmth, coolness. They condition the arising of body consciousness. The consciousness isn't waiting around. It, it arises and passes away. Sometimes mindfulness gets so refined we can see the arising and passing of consciousness. It too is impermanent. This is the other sense, contact at the eye door, seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, tasting, smelling, mind consciousness, this contact and knowing. Nama and rupa, it's a dance, over and over. Mind knowing body, nama knowing rupa, mentality knowing materiality, mind knowing nature, wakefulness knowing reality, Buddha knowing dhamma. Wakefulness, knowing the truth of things. Buddha, knowing Dhamma, that's our practice. Hmm. And these things go back and forth. When things come into the mind, let's say anger or shame arise in the mind, the heat or other sensations may uh, conditions the body. The body responds to that. When the mind is cooled out, calm, the body may feel relaxed or deep ease or maybe lightness. Attention arising in the mind, the body moves. Bhante spoke about this. The intention to move arises in the mind. Then the body, body doesn't move by itself. Starts in the mind. Too much heat or too much cold conditions the mind. Too hot aversion might arise. Why don't they cool it off? They should open the windows. It's too hot in here. Too cold. Why don't they turn on the heat? What's wrong with these people? Materiality conditioning mentality. The this morning, Bhante uh, talked, uh, guided us through an exploration of 
unpleasant sensations, painful sensations. We see those arising, and the mind, in the uh, in the body, and the mind responding: aversion, fear, resistance. Pleasant ones might arise. We might see the mind moving, liking, wanting, perhaps craving, grasping. So it's just this reveals the empty nature of it all. It's just this flow, causal flow, one thing conditioning another. It's empty of anything solid or enduring in there. There's no core to it. And so this whole exploration begins to reveal the fact that we're just we're just seeing the way things are. We're not trying to, you know, draw some understanding. We're trying to get insight to not get it and put it in there and then realize it or or uh, somehow tease it out. We're just revealing what's always there. It's always there. Because we're just exploring the truth of the way things are. And the truth isn't just there sometimes. <laughs> you don't have to like, okay, I'm going to get it all together and get in this deep state of samadhi and then truth will dawn. Well, yes, truth might dawn then, but it's not because it didn't exist when you were all bummed out and agitated and wishing you went home and whatever else. It's always there. We're swimming in it. We're swimming in Nibbana right now. It's closer to us than the inside of our eyelid. Real close. So we're just recognizing what's here. And, and there's this relaxation that can happen through the practice with this, this, this kind of deep healing and release where we we lay down this burden that we did not know we were carrying. But when we let it go, boy, what a, re- what a relief. Like a weight, like something we've been dragging around. Uh, I think I'll just let that go. So I'm going to end, uh, end this evening with some words from uh, Thai forest master whose photograph is down in the gratitude hut. It was a teacher of uh, Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Mahabua and others, a teacher of uh, Mei Chi, Kao, Ajahn Man. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When the body's nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. Never allow the mind to desert the body. Everything we need to learn to see can be revealed there in this fathom-long body. It's all there and always all there. So let's uh, just
just have a couple of moments of quiet together, allowing the awareness to rest gently within the body, simply, directly. So thank you for your kind attention. And there's time now for walking meditation. And if you have some energy, please be welcome for the chanting. And as was mentioned, you can come um, and uh, just stay for the chanting. And and, uh, there's no uh, ending. uh, So you can stay for as long as you like for the chanting period. So please be welcome for that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.